0: There's a show, I don't know some of you guys or heard about, they didn't know it super well last night, called Pawn Stars. Um, and basically, if you don't know about the show, what it is, is people bring in from their house items that they have, old antiques. So it's kind of like an antique type, sh- type store where they come in, and they bring this, like, oftentimes, like, family heirloom that's been passed down from generation to generation. It's like, oh, yeah, my father gave it to me, and his father gave it to him, and it's, like, a very nice, like, Antique thing that they try to sell for like a lot of money. So like, hey, I'm trying to get rid of this autographed football by like all the uh, all the Super Bowl winners of the Green Bay Packers back in 1955, and I'm looking for a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. And so then they'll like inspect it, and if they think it's a good item, they'll end up buying it and uh, make that money. And one individual came in and he had this painting by a French. A painter named Claude Monet and famous French painter. Maybe you've heard of him. And he had a painting of it, which he was like, was passed down through me. And man, I, I think it's really valuable. He came in and he's like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to ask for $1 million for the, for this painting. So he's going in, it's been passed down. Think about it. Probably in a very special place in his house and probably in his dad's house, very special place says, I'm looking for $1 million for this work of art. And so he gives it to the guy, and uh, the guy at the, the pawn shop has this guy that knows art very well. So he comes over and, and looks at it and inspects it to see, oh, man, should we, should we buy this thing or not? And the guy ends up looking at it, and he says, you came in looking for a $1 million? Um, actually, this, this is a fake painting, um, and, and it's worth nothing, and so we don't want to buy it. Think about that. You're that guy walking in there thinking that, man, I've got this work of art worth, I mean, a million dollars. And he walks away and he's, man, for all those years, I was deceived. Year upon year, my parents were deceived, my grandparents were deceived, thinking this was real, and it turned out to be fake. I mean, I kind of feel bad for the dude who was deceived for such a long time. And we can be deceived in many different ways, but ultimately we can feel bad for the guy, but really the worst way to be deceived. And the people we should feel the most bad for is people that are deceived, not when it comes to how much their, their art is worth, but people who are deceived when it comes to their standing with God. People who think, oh, yeah, I have a relationship with God. I'm right with him. Yeah, I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus. But if we really inspected their life and evaluated some things about them. Say, hey, is it, are you real? Are you a genuine follower of Christ or not? don 't want any of us in the room to be people who are deceived, thinking we 're right with God when we 're not and sadly it 's far too often I mean when you hear our baptism services that happen how how often do you hear oh I, I mean I thought I was a Christian, and then I realized that I wasn 't a Christian I mean even part of my own testimony was there was a span of about four or five years all throughout junior high I thought I was a Christian i wasn 't trying to trick anybody, um, but I genuinely thought I was, but If you looked at some things about my life, it showed, hey, you're actually not right with God. In the passage that we're going to look at today, I turn to it. It's James 1 26 through 27. It's going to give us some tests and some things that we can look at our lives in light of these things that are listed and say, okay, these are things that a Christian does. Does my life align with those things? Not saying that we're saved as a result of our works. That is not what I'm saying. I want to say that here at the front we saved only by repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. But once you do that, there are going to be things that in your life change as a result. And guess what? If things don't change in your life, did your heart really change? And I think what James is going to show us is that, man, you can look at things in your life to give you confidence or assurance that, yeah, I'm a follower of God. Or if those things aren't present, you can say, am I actually a Christian? Or is it fake? Am I... A counterfeit is at fake faith. Let's look at James 1 26 and 27 and see what are some of the tests that we can examine our life with. It says this, verse 26. It says, If anyone thinks he is religious, they're right there, thinks he's religious. So someone thinks, hey, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a Christian. In this uh, setting, he tr- uses the term religious to talk about that. Oh, yeah, I think, man, I go to church, uh, I come to small groups you no, sometimes I do the DVR. Okay, yeah, I, I mean, I think I'm a follower of God. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. This idea of bridling his tongue. Hey, if you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I have genuine faith in Christ, I'm a follower of him, but yet you don't have control over your tongue. This idea of bridle, what does it say? You're deceived And this person's religion, hey, you see, you got faith? It's not real. It's worthless. It's vain. It's not genuine in the end. One of the tests that we're given here in James 1 26, 27 is hey, are you someone who is a master over their words? Or are you just reckless and say whatever comes to your mind? Point number one, put it down this way you need to control your words. Control your words. What do I mean by that? Do you watch the things that you say? That's the first test that is given in this passage. Hey, are do you claim to be a Christian? You claim to be right with God? Well, do you bridle your tongue is the is the phrase that's used. Think about that, bridle. Bridle. That's a that like head contraption that they put on a horse. Um, It almost looks like headgear, like those of you who have braces, Um, like if you had to go like extensive and get like the whole headgear thing, it kind of looks like headgear on a horse. It's those things that go all around. You got the bit in the mouth of the horse and then those straps that lead to the reins for the rider. And those of you that have gone horseback riding know what that is. Now, what's the purpose of that bridle? Why do we put this bridle, this contraption on the head of a horse? Well, we do so because say you're sitting on the back of a horse and you want it to go this way and the horse starts veering off this way and sees like some food over there. You say, hey, no, I'm going to pull on these reins. I'm going to pull the head back from this horse and say, no, you need to go this way. And then you keep going and the horse says, oh, I want to go this way. And you pull it back, restrain it and say, no, this is where you're supposed to go. That's the idea of here of bridling our tongue, pulling it back, controlling it, restraining it? Are we people that have restrain and control over our words? It almost seems like a very simplistic way of saying, hey, are you right with God or not? Think about it. He says, hey, you want one test to know whether you're right with God, if you think you're right with God or not? Check your words. Think about all the things that he could have said. Oh, well, is this happening? Is this happening? It when I first read it, it's like, it seems like he's kind of simplifying what, what you should really look at. Shouldn't you kind of look at all these different areas of your life? Why does he just simplify it down to, do you control your words? Matthew chapter 12 is going to give us the answer to that. Turn it over to Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 35. This passage, are these religious leaders, the Pharisees, that are looking at Jesus and these miraculous things that he's doing and saying that these things like casting out demons, what he's doing is done by the power of Satan. Like, think about that. They're saying, oh yeah, Jesus, yeah, these crazy things that he's doing, it's by the power of Satan. It's like, I mean, is that a good word to use or a not good thing to say? It's like, that's probably a pretty bad thing to say, to tell God, Jesus, God, that hey what you're doing is by the power of satan literally the antithesis of god like talk about some bad words to be to, to be said now look at Matthew 12 drop down to verse 33 jesus says this he says either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit say so, hey picture picture fruit trees it's like how do you know when looking at a tree that hey that's a that's an apple tree it's like, well, I mean, like, if you're really into, like, like, I don't know, vegetation, you probably without seeing apples on the tree could, like, figure it out. Oh, yeah, I can see how the leaves are. But, like, just ordinary people like us, you look at a tree, how do you know it that it's an apple tree? Well, because there's apples on the tree. Wow, genius. Look at there. You can uh, go to Mission High School and be part of the ag program. Like, there you go. You can make some apple trees. Um, Well, you look at this tree, how do you know that it's an avocado tree? Some of your favorite like fruit, avocado. It's like, well, there's avocados on the tree. It's like, hey, you know the type of tree that it is by the fruit that it produces. Similarly, verse 34, he goes on, he says, you brood of vipers. Think about how attacking that is right there. You Pharisees, you're like snakes, vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Saying, hey, you're saying all these evil things, Pharisees. You want to know why? Because of what's going on in your hearts. Because really, your words show what's going on in here, shows what's happening in your heart. And what I mean by heart and what scripture means by heart isn't like, hey, it's what's going on in like the physical organ that's like pumping to like sustain your body. Heart is used to term like who we are, like who we are as people inside. We have our soul, which is distinct from our physical bodies, who we are. Our words show what's really going on inside. Verse 35, it says, The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Say, so, hey, if you have a heart that's been changed by Christ, you've repented of your sin, you've put your trust in Christ, guess what? Second Corinthians five seventeen, if you're in Christ, you're a what? New creation. Guess what? You have a new heart, new desires. And you know what kind of words are going to come out of a transformed heart? Good words, kind words, uplifting words. You know what kind of words come out of a heart that hasn't been transformed by Christ? Divisive words, mean words, rude words. That's why James can say, hey, you want to check, examine yourself, test number one to see, man, and I think I'm a Christian. How can I either be affirmed or denied What's the content of your words? Once again, you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to say, oh, yeah, well, I mean, that one time I said a mean thing. Oh, that must mean I'm not a Christian. We're not going to be perfect with our words, but what is the general pattern of your life? Because a transformed heart by Christ is going to lead to transformed speech, different words. Would you say when that moment that you say, hey, I became a Christian, did your words and your speech look different before and after? Was there a change in that? Because need you realize that your words are impactful. Your words matter. Maybe say, oh, my words don't matter. I think we recognize that words do matter. Not like the phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. That's not true. And you've experienced that. You've had someone say something mean to you, and that really hurts you. You felt the pain of that. Or someone says something really nice to you, and that's really kind to you. I remember back, um, I think it was about a year ago in Edge, um, we had these students visit who didn't live um, locally. They lived on the East Coast. And they came, and they walked up to me, and they said, like, hey, we, we like, watch all, like, the, the Edge, like, sermons. And, like, and at first I'm like, that's kind of weird. Like, why you live on the East Coast? Why are you, like, watching me talk? Like, uh, like kind of weird. And they're like, oh, we, we wrote, like, some thank you cards for you. Um, I still have those cards. I have like a special place in my office where I keep them. And I, and I was like, wow, these people living across the country. I don't know why they're watching me or listening to me, but wow, they wrote some kind. And I was reading the cards. And I was like, wow. like Once again, fifth and sixth graders, like my expectations aren't like super high for like a really nice thing. It was like, wow, these are some really kind words. And it felt nice. I felt, that was encouraging to hear. I'm sure you've experienced something like that too, where someone says good job or well done or encourages something that you've done well and It feels good, doesn't it? you appreciate that? Well, how about the other side? When someone says rude words to you, something mean. I mean, I go out evangelizing with our evangelism team, and I mean, not every week, but oftentimes they'll go and knock on someone's door, and you know, oh yeah, we're going around asking people, inviting people to church. And they're like, yeah, get out of here, and they slam the door on your face, and you're just like, whoa, that, that, that didn't feel good like you walk away and you're like, oh man, that, that wasn't the nicest. I mean, trying not to like beat yourself up over it, but you're like, that, that wasn't nice. I'm, I'm assuming at this point you've experienced something like that too. Someone says rude or mean things to you and it doesn't feel good. You don't welcome it. You're not like, oh, thank you. And if you haven't experienced someone say mean things to you, come and tell me because at this point of your life, you've probably had it happen over and over and over and over again because our words matter. Our words are impactful. They're significant. Uh, A word fitly spoken is like an apple gold in the setting of silver, is what what Proverbs talks about. So, too, can a word that's said that's mean can oftentimes feel just like a punch in the face, like you're smacking someone in the face. Which makes me think of how many of you have seen the movie The Crudes before? Have you guys seen The Crudes? There's this movie called The Crudes where there's these characters, um, these monkeys actually, that are in this movie. And um, they're called, their name is actually Punch Monkeys, um, if you don't know. And why they're called Punch Monkeys is because these monkeys have a certain language that they use that's different than the English that are spoken by the people. And these monkeys, why they're called Punch Monkeys is because their language, how they communicate, it is not verbal. They literally communicate to each other by punching them, punching each other in the face. Like, it's a weird movie. I just remember watching it. I'm like, okay, very creative by whoever came up with this script. And one time there's this human who like, is like, oh yeah, I speak Punch Monkey. And he's like talking to the monkey. And he's like, all right, he's saying, and he's like getting punched in the face. He's like, and he wants his bananas back as he's getting like punched all over the place. I'm like, oh, it's kind of weird. A weird thing to like come up with the movie. But I was like, wow, when I was thinking about that, I was like, "Wow, how often does that kind of characterize how our words do feel? that our words, if we use them wrongly, it does quite literally feel like you're punching someone right in the face. See, we know the and recognize the good that comes from good words and the bad that comes from bad words, and God cares about our words. Why does he care about our words? Well, first because he cares about other people, but because of Our speech shows what's going on in our hearts. And a transformed heart is going to lead to transformed speech. Would your life be characterized by controlled words or words that are out of control, uncontrolled? Do you have control over your speech? Or whatever comes to mind, that's what you say. Whatever you feel, you're kind of reckless. Always talking, saying things that you shouldn't. So a lot of different categories of how you could kind of compare and contrast. Man, do I have controlled speech or uncontrolled speech? Let's think through some of those categories. Do you have words that are hurtful, slanderous, insulting? That's one category over here. Or do you have words that are uplifting, encouraging, kind? Think in your life, what's the general... Words that you use, where do they fall? How about this? Another category. Are your words boastful? Oh, me, myself, I, I did this. Look at me. I'm the greatest. I can't believe I did this. Look at me. Or is it uplifting others? Praising others? I mean, praising God ultimately. Where would your speech fall under? How about this? Another category of uncontrolled speech. Empty religious phrases. What do I mean by that? You could go into main service and stand there and sing the worship songs, but not really even be thinking about what you're saying. Just, oh yeah, I'm just saying this thing, just kind of like going through a script, not thinking about it, but oh yeah, la, 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 la. I mean, is God pleased by just vain things said? No, He's not. Oh, just I'm not even thinking, careless. No, even if it's a good thing, He wants you to mean it, be Heartfelt's about that. Is it empty, vain, thoughtless, religious phrases or songs sung or answers um, given in small groups? Or is it genuine praise and worship when you sing to him? Heartfelt answers that you give in small groups. Which side would you fall on? Are you a liar? It's another category. Do you fabricate the truth? Make things seem bigger than they are? Are you a truth teller? Are your words divisive or are they unifying? Do you use God's name in vain? Do you curse? Say wrong words, or do you give speech that's glorifying to God? Are your words full of complaining and whining and grumbling? Or is it filled with thanksgiving? That's just a bunch of categories right there. It's a help you think through, okay, by and large, I know I'm not gonna be perfect, even as a Christian, but where does my speech fall under? That's the first test that's given by James here in 126 is, are your words controlled or not? Why? Because controlled speech show a heart that's ultimately controlled not by you, but controlled by God. God's my Lord. God's my Savior. My words belong to him, and I'm going to glorify him with my speech. Ultimately, you should really care about your words because Matthew 12, which I don't think I told you to turn anywhere else if you're still there. Look down, Matthew 12, 36. It says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now, I've said that verse before, but let that sink in. Every careless word, every sarcastic comment, every passive-aggressive statement said, every argument started with their siblings, every rude things said about your parents or about your teachers you're going to give an account for? Do you care about your words? We should have the prayer that the psalmist in Psalm 141 verse 3 says, which is, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Can that be our prayer? To control our words? It's the first test right there who have controlled speech. The second one, turn back to James chapter one. Let's look at verse 27. The second test to see, oh man, I think I'm a Christian. Okay, I'm looking at my words, seeing where do they fall under. Second one comes in verse 27. It says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So kind of on the opposite side of verse 26, where it's hey, this is you think you're you think you're right with God, you think you have this genuine religion, this faith in Christ, and you don't control your words, you're you're fake. But here now, let me show you what it looks like to ha- be a genuine Christian, uh, religion that is two words that are given pure and undefiled, and they're kind of two synonyms to kind of say the same thing. Um, undefiled is the negative synonym of pure. What do I mean by that? It's like if I said um, that someone's shirt was dirty and unclean. It's like, okay, you're kind of saying the same thing. The clean would be, um, the antonym unclean would be the negative synonym of, uh, dirty. So pure and undefiled saying the same thing. This is religion. This is faith that is pleasing to God, that God is, yeah, well done, acceptable, great. He isn't very extensive about it, but here's one attribute that you can check in your life to say, man, I call myself, I think I am a genuine Christian. Do I have this thing? Here's what it is. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Their affliction, their suffering, their trouble, the pain that orphans and widows go through. I want you to think a little bit back to the first century of James and how he's writing to his audience. We established weeks ago at this point that he's writing to these uh, Christians that are being persecuted. And because there was heavy persecution going on, they were kind of scattered all around. You guys remember that, right? Kind of scattered all around. Now, think about it. If you had to pick up your family and, or pick up yourself and move somewhere else, you'd have to go find a new place to, to earn a living, find a new place to live, a lot of things that go on. Well, who would it be the most difficult on to just get up and, and go somewhere else? Who would be the people that have the most difficulty, affliction, suffering? Well, it'd be probably the orphans and the widows, orphans, those without parents or oftentimes used as not necessarily just those without uh, two parents, um, but those that maybe just are without one parent. So think about like an orphan. uh, It's oftentimes even translated fatherless. So maybe they do have a mom, but hey, guess what? The dad's the one who makes the money or brings home the bacon and does that sort of thing. So, I mean, how are we going to get our meat's end? Think about a widow widow, husbands died, the one who's been providing for them, oh man, it's kind of tough. How are are they going to survive? It was kind of difficult. We even see in the start of the early church, it was difficult on widows and orphans. In Acts 6 verse 1, um, they had to basically have a group meeting together with a bunch of believers because at the end of Acts 6 1, it says, the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, saying, hey, it was It was tough on these group of people, widows and orphans. It was tough on them. So he encourages them and he challenges them. Hey, you say you're a genuine follower of Christ. Do you care for orphans and widows? It's a good test for us. Point number two, you need to care for those in need. Care for those in need. That's the second test that we can give and examine our hearts with. First, do I have controlled speech? Second, do I care for those in need? In the first century, those most in need were orphans and widows, Uh, can be applicable, I think in some senses today, but we'll also think through some other maybe needy and neglected individuals in our modern context. But think about it. Do we care for those in need? You know who does care for those in need? God. (laughs) Sounds, Sounds simple to say. God cares for them. Psalm 68, verse 5 says, Father of the fatherless. Well, who's the fatherless? That's, that's an orphan. So father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Say, hey, you know who's the father to those without a father? God is. You know who's the protector for the widow when um, they don't have anyone to protect them? God is. God is the one who cares for them. God cares for those in need. God cares for the neglected. I mean, God didn't only say that we should care. He he showed that he did. I mean, when Jesus came into the earth, he cared for those in need. He cared for those who were outcasts. He cared for those who were neglected. In Matthew chapters eight and nine, you can see all kinds of people that Jesus interacted with that were kind of outcasted by society. I mean, Matthew chapter eight, Jesus um, cleanses a leper. Think about that leprosy. Someone who had leprosy, they basically said, "Hey, stay away from the rest of us." <laughs> I mean, talk about neglected. Hey, get out of here because, like, we don't want you to infect everyone else. Stay away. Well, Jesus cared for them, and I mean, so specifically showed his care for this leper in particular by saying, "Hey, I'm going to heal you. Gone is the leprosy." Other people in Matthew chapter eight nine, a paralytic someone who can't walk, someone who had to beg for their meals, beg for food, beg for money. Jesus cared for them. He could have just said, oh, I'm going to move past them. Yeah, who cares? No, he cared for them. The blind man, a man unable to speak. I know Jesus quite literally showed his care by healing them. But others, he showed his care just by being around people that the rest of society at that time would have been like, why are you hanging around those people? Jesus gets in trouble by some of the religious leaders for hanging around people, people that are in need or kind of outcasted or neglected, and they say, why are you hanging around those people? You should be hanging around those those needy, neglected people. Stay away from them. That's what it says in Matthew 9:11. It says when the Pharisees saw this, they see Jesus hanging around with these certain people that they don't like. They said to his disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is Jesus doing that? Tax collectors. Oh, we don't like these people. They're taking our money from us, oftentimes doing it unjustly. Sinners, that's like a broad category. All these uh, wicked people. Why, Why is Jesus doing that? Well, he says, hey, those who are sick are the ones that need a physician, not those who are well. So Jesus cared for those that... Needed help because he was the helper. Jesus cared for those in need, cared for those who were neglected. Do you care for those who are neglected? Who are some of those people? Who are some of those categories that we can think of of neglected or needy individuals? I mean, we can see a couple of examples here in James 1. I think they apply today. Orphans, those without parents, widows, those without spouses. I think we can even broaden the sense of widows and saying elderly people. Those are often neglected in society today, pushed aside. I mean, it, it's sad. How about this, lonely people, new people? If a new person comes into the narrow, do they feel neglected? Do they feel like, oh, well, they've already got their friend group, so yeah, I don't like it here be an area of someone who's neglected how about this people that are sick people that are hurt people that are in need and neglected do we care for them or not well Nathan I don't I don't have that much I mean I if I was to like add up all my savings together and like give it to a widow like I don't know maybe we could like feed her for like a month like I don't, don't just think of care in monetary terms Like, yeah, obviously those that have an abundance of wealth, not even necessarily just abundance of wealth, we're supposed to use our finances no matter how much we have in some capacities to give to those who are in need, but care isn't just limited to to money. I mean, you can show care to someone by being there for them. I mean, if a new person walks into the narrow, that's a neglected person. I mean, you could show care to them by like, hey, here's 20 bucks. (laughs) Kind of weird though. um, But you could show your care to them by going up and talking to them. Being a friend to them. Welcoming them into the group. I mean, one of the reasons why we don't like caring for these people, and I mean, this might hit really home in one group in particular, with the elderly, those who are neglected, is because there's a lot of people, and sadly, I think people in this room who don't like old people. Don't care for them. And while you wouldn't say that, no one would like if we handed out tests. Hey, do you care and like elderly people? You wouldn't put like no, but do your actions show that you actually care for widows? You actually care for elderly individuals, or is it? Oh man, I don't want to go talk to them. Oh man, if I, I don't want to go see my grandparents, and I was gonna go have a sleepover with my friends, I really gotta go talk and talk about parent adult things. Ugh. Do we, or do we respect and honor those who are older than us? I mean, sadly, today in our culture, there's such a disgusting uh, disregard towards old people. Even a lot of the social media influencers and they talk about, oh yeah, the most neglected often in our society are the the preborn, oftentimes the unborn or the children, and then on the other spectrum, old individuals. Yeah, you're on your last leg, anyways. Who cares? You're almost dead. It's awful. It's disgusting. Now, do those attitudes and mindsets, do they infiltrate our own heart and our own minds, or do we respect, honor, and care for those who are older? Leviticus 19 verse 32 says, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Say, do you Stand up and honor elderly individuals. I hope I never come into a room and you're sitting down and there's no other chairs and there's an old person standing there and you're sitting there in the chair. And if you don't say, Hey, t- here, take my seat, offer it up. Do you stand up? Do you welcome and invite and say hi to older individuals? Even here at the church, do we just stay here in the narrow? When we go to main service, we just stick together and it's like, oh, I don't want to talk to those people in ABF. That's, that's weird. I don't want to do that. Well, guess what? God, in saving those who are his, called the church, has called us to care for each other and not care about these external distinctions that we can make between each other, but say, hey, if you're a young person, you're going to care for the old people, old people care for the young people, not make all these distinctions, but Have a like minded concern for each other? Do you look at an old person in the eyes when you talk to them? Or do you just try to find every way to get out of that conversation because it's kind of weird? One of the tests that we can ask ourselves for genuine followers of Christ we're going to care for other people, care for the neglected, and care for the elderly. Because ultimately, if you were to summarize what a, char- a Christian's life looks like, you're to say, what's one characteristic that's true of a Christian? Give one word. Christians are to be characterized by love. The book on the back that I recommended this week, it's not like an ex- a different book. It's the book of 1 John, which is a great book to read through if you're not sure if you're right with God or not, because it talks about the distinction between the two. But you know what 1 John goes on over and over and over again about? What, char- what characterizes a Christian? All about love. Love, 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 love. And love isn't just like, oh man, yeah, I've got ai really love that, that, I got a crush on that. No, what, what, what love is, biblical love, in, in this sense, I know there's a couple different words um, in Greek that talk about different types of love, but the love that we're talking about is a genuine care concern for the well-being of others, even if it's costly to you. This sacrificial, selfless care for someone else. You know what love looks like? First John 3, verse 16, it says this, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Say, so, hey, you know how love was shown? Jesus died for you. We've talked about that. So too, if you want to love, you want to lay down your life for others. That doesn't just mean, oh, I'm going to give up my life. If someone's, if a car's going to come and hit my friend, I'm going to go jump out in front. No, it's saying, I know what I feel like doing, but I'm going to put that to the side because I'm going to consider what would they want me to do? What would be nice for me to do for them? Verse 17 of 1 John 3 says, but if anyone has the world's goods, think about that, you have stuff and Sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? I'm saying, hey, if you see someone in need, you push them aside. How can you say that you love them? Does that mean that, oh, man, every time there's someone on the corner asking for money and I, I drive past them, oh, that means, Nathan, you, you, you sinned. I don't think that's necessarily the case because here we're talking about brothers which Brothers is talking about the church, talking about believers. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be kind and generous towards unbelievers, but especially so to Christians that are in need, the church, to help one another. I mean, by giving to the church, you are already doing that, supporting widows and helping people that are in need. But do you think about it? Do you care? Because in verse 27 of James 1, it says, Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Visit isn't just like, oh, okay, I'm going to go to the old folks' home. Um, okay, yeah, I went there. Check, I visited orphans and widows. It's like, no, it, it's talking about something bigger than that. It's not just a one-time going on a visit. It's actually talking about a continuous thing. And not just visiting, going to see someone, although that could be part of caring for someone. It's caring for, providing for, helping with their needs, Oftentimes we say, oh, yeah, I really care about so-and-so. I'm just going to tell them how much I care about them. Oh, I'm not going to do anything, though. It's like imagine if I heard one of my friends was, was in the hospital, really sick, in the hospital. And I'm like, oh, man, I feel so bad. I care so much about them. Um, and then I hear that they're, they're feeling lonely there. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's awful. That's a close friend. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray that someone goes to visit them. I'm just really gonna pray that just someone is a friend to them and, and visits them in the hospital because they're feeling lonely and I don't like that. So I'm gonna pray, God, please send someone to visit them. I mean, you're laughing because you're like, really? <laughs> go visit your friend. Like, <laughs> go see them. Go, go talk to them. Oftentimes, we think of care and we just think of, oh, I've got these warm feelings towards Someone. No, genuine care is not just saying, oh, I'm going to pray for them, although that is part of caring, saying I'm going to pray for them, and guess what, actually praying for them. Not just saying, oh, yeah, I'll pray about that, moving on. No, saying there are physical, literal things that I'm going to do to care for you, and that's costly, that's hard, that's not easy, it's difficult. It's oftentimes how we care nowadays, it's just, oh, yeah, oh, I'll pray that you feel better, cool, but that's it. How can we care for those in need, orphans? I mean, monetarily, you can give, you can also be a friend if you don't have a ton of money. Somebody who, oh man, don't really have a family, kind of feel isolated, lonely. We need a friend to them. Widows, elderly. I'm gonna go intentionally visit them. Hey, mom and dad, can we go and visit so-and-so? I mean, I think there's all elderly and, widows that we can think of in our life that we should say, man, we should go visit them. We should write them cards, bring them gifts. Not just once, but an ongoing care and concern for them. Lonely people, be a friend, welcome them when they come into the narrow. Or are you just like, oh no, I'm with my friends, I'm good. Sick people, saying, oh, I wanna, I wanna cheer them up. They're in the hospital, I wanna go, go say hi to them. Bring them a gift, go talk with them. We care for those who are in need. Part of caring is willing to be inconvenienced for someone else, because oftentimes caring in this sense is going to inconvenience you. And we live in such a society where it's all about like efficiency and making it the most convenient. Um, it's like with whole Amazon. It's like I don't want to go to the store. I'm just going to like go on Amazon online because like it'd be kind of inve- inconvenient to like get up into my car and then go to the store. So rather than just going to go plop onto Amazon and like buy something. And I, don't get me wrong, I'm thankful for Amazon. I'm not renting Amazon. It's like even like, hey, I'm hungry. Man, I don't want to go drive to the restaurant. You know what I'm going to do? Uber, Uber Eats. I'm going to like have someone else go to the store, pick up the food and drop it off at my house. Or, like Amazon Fresh, where it's like, I don't even wanna shop for groceries. I'm gonna have someone else go shop for the groceries because I wanna be, I want it to be the most convenient and they're gonna come bring it to me. I even saw an advertisement from Walmart where it's like, you can have someone not only shop for you, pick it up, not just drop it off, they will put it in the fridge for you. They'll come into your house, put it in the fridge. Like, talk about making like convenience upon convenience. We live in a society where it's like making it as convenient as we can. But guess what? Caring for those in need is going to be inconvenient. And if it's not inconvenient, are we really caring? But you need to say, I am willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of someone else. I feel like tonight, I just want to, it was a long day at school. I just want to sit on the couch and just watch TV. But you know what I'm going to do instead? I'm going to get up and I'm going to go visit my grandparents and talk with them and sit in there and have an adult conversation with the adults and not just go run off with the kids and do something else. No, I'm going to show my care. You know, I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to find out if there's maybe a widow here at the church that I, that I can write to. If there's someone sick in my small group, oh, man, but I was going to go have a, have a hangout with, with my friends from school. But no, I'm going to rather go visit my friend who's feeling sick at home or in the hospital. I'm going to go do that. Test number two, do we care for those in need? You can get an A plus in your Bible knowledge, but an F in care and love for other people, and what good is that? Because why that is a test for whether we're right with God or not is because a transformed heart, once again, is going to manifest itself in genuine care and concern for other people, in particular, those who are in need. Third test, quickly, James one twenty seven, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, pleasing to God the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Third one, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To be pure, spotless, without fault, not one and the same with the world. Be distinct. Put it this way for point number three. You need to stay away from bad influences. Stay away from bad influences. God has purchased his church, his bride, through the blood of Christ. Now, he doesn't go want his bride to go be one and the same with the world. He doesn't want them to be stained by it. Or another term for that could be contaminated. A contaminated thing isn't a good thing. A stained thing isn't a good thing. God doesn't like that. I mean, we don't like contaminated things either. Imagine if I was back behind the smoothie bar serving up smoothies. There should be a red flag going off right there. Like, Nathan's running a smoothie bar today. Beware. And I come, and you're coming to get your smoothie. And I'm like, oh, here you go. Here's your delicious smoothie. Just by the way, it's been a little contaminated. <laughs> <laughs> just just a little. Yeah, just a little. Um, you'd be like, uh, like, what do you mean by contaminated? Oh, just like a little toilet water. Just a little bit. Yeah, just a, just a tiny bit. You'd be like, uh uh, uh, hard pass. That is disgusting. I do not want even, oh, it just it just one drop. I don't, I don't care. I do not want my smoothie being contaminated in any way. Don't want it. So too, God doesn't want his church, his bride, believers to be contaminated or stained by the world. There's so many bad influences out there. Do we draw towards that? Contamination is not a good thing. It's like one time I was at Knott's Berry Farm with my friend, and we went to Panda Express, and he was eating his orange chicken. And he got to the bottom of his orange chicken, and he found a penny in his orange chicken. It's disgusting. If you know anything about how gross money is, gross. It's like contamination is not a good thing. So, too, all the bad influences that are out there in the world And I'm not even just saying out there. I mean, you could be coming to the narrow, and there could be friends that are bad influences on you here. Now, why this is a good test to say, am I right with God, is do you naturally slide toward the, oh, man, it's a little edgier crowd. Oh, they kind of like doing things that are like morally uh, uh, sketchy at best, but definitely some bad things at school. Or we all know, because I went to school as well, like there's those group of people that are oftentimes deemed the cooler kids, but they're doing lots of bad things. Do you tend to like slide towards that side of people? You say, man, I need to stay away from them. Those bad influences. do you welcome or are you beware of bad influences? Not just your friends. How about this media TV, movies, TikTok, social media, YouTube, music—what do you consume? Because everything that you consume, if believe it or not, it's influencing you in some way. We all like to live in this world like, oh, I can listen to as much bad music as I want. It's not going to influence you in any in, influence me in any way. That's not true. It, rings through your mind. It's like meditation, Why we say, hey, God's word, think about it a lot because that's gonna influence you. So too, everything that you consume that goes through your ears or you watch, you take in, has an influence on you. You need to understand that. You need to know how you're influenced and what you're influenced by. And a test to ask yourself is, do I lean towards the bad influences or do I, am I quick to say, get out of here? Do I push them away? Israel, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament oftentimes were influenced by poor influences. They were engaged in this thing called syncretism. Um, syncretism, what that is, is worshiping the God of Israel, but also false gods at the same time. So it'd be like, oh, over here we're going to have a sacrifice to the God of Israel, but also we're going to sacrifice to uh, these false gods just to have like, all of our bases covered. Well, You think God was pleased with that? You think God was happy about that? No way. I mean, think about it. One of the rules in the Old Testament was that they were not, not supposed to intermarry with people of other nations. Why? Oh, is, is, is that uh, racism? No, because he didn't want Israel to be persuaded and influenced by these people who didn't worship the true God. And they marry these people that worship false gods. And their influence to say, oh, man, maybe we should worship these false gods, too. It says, no, stay away. Beware. Watch out. Do we watch out? Do we beware? Or as 1 John 2.15 says, do we love the world and the things in the world? And all those things that are edgier, oh, man, those TV shows that, oh, man, they're, they're rated a little worse. Or, but, man, I don't like watching the kids' shows that, like, don't have anything bad in it. So I want to lean towards, towards the bad stuff. The slightly, just not too bad, but edgier. Because that's, that's, that's what everyone watches nowadays at school. It's the cool stuff. Where do you fall? Ask your heart. Examine yourself. Because it impacts you. Filter the things that you consume. TV, movies, all that stuff that I listed. Conversations. Filter it through. So the three tests to examine your lives that are given here in James 1, 26 through 27. I started this sermon talking about a man who was deceived about this thing that he thought was very valuable when it was not. Well, one thing that I have that I would probably bring to a a store like that to potentially sell is I have this Michael Jordan rookie card. Um, So back in the day, I used to collect cards, um, sports cards. And rookie cards are like like the most pristine or special cards. And I have a, a Michael Jordan rookie card. If you look up, like, how much it costs to, to buy a Michael Jordan rookie card, they range from, like, hundreds to thousands of dollars. Um, and so I've got, I've got a card I could show it to you. It's, it's in my office. Um, but I don't have it verified. Um, and to be honest, I, I don't really want it to be checked because I have a feeling that it's not a legit, actual Michael Jordan rookie card. Um, why do I think that? Well, I bought it on an eBay auction for seven bucks, so there you go. Um, but who knows? Maybe I maybe I got a steal of a deal. But I'm content just kind of living in ignorance, being like, hey, maybe I've got this really valuable like Michael Jordan rookie card because I feel like if I actually do get it tested, it's gonna show to like not be real. And it's like, oh, I'd rather just live in ignorance, live in bliss. I don't want you. To not examine your heart and think, oh, I'm just living in ignorance, living in bliss, thinking I'm right with God. That's the worst thing that you can do. What you need to do is examine your life. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see if you are of the faith. Look at your heart, look at your life. Do I control my words? Do I care for those in need? Do I steer clear of bad influences? Because ultimately, these outward actions show what's going on in our hearts. And if all those things, you say, yeah, I do those things, awesome. Extel still still more. But if not, ask yourself, am I really right with God? And if not, get right with God. Talk to your leader. Talk to me. Don't push it off. Do business with God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that there is a way for us to be made right with you because of Jesus. That there is no other way to be saved but through putting our trust in Christ. God, help us even to recognize that this sermon isn't about doing works that make us saved, but really how our actions show what's going on in our hearts. So I ask that we would examine ourselves to see whether we are right with you or not. And as I said at the end, that if they are, that they would continue in it and grow in bridling their tongue, in caring for the the needy, in pushing away bad influences. But if they're not right with you, they wouldn't just try to simply do good things to earn your favor, but to say, man, I can't do these good things on my own, but I need to trust in Christ to be saved. God, we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.